This Quietcast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes Very explore optimistic. new <laughs> challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, nah, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't do- find me by what I do in bed. You think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my god. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. Rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. <laughs> Give us. <laughs> A bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. We are so excited to have each of you listening. A very special welcome to Cat Love, our one and only patron on Patreon. We're so thankful for you. In this season of Thanksgiving, you're the number one thing that we're thankful for. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm Jason Elam, and I am joined tonight by Lola and Kyle. Introduce yourself, guys. Hi, I'm Lola, and I foraged for acorns all day today, and I hope that you're having a good day, and I hope that you stretched, and... I'm very excited for this conversation and I'm running out of things to say. Sorry. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. My name is Kyle. I'm just uh, a happy person trying to do the best I can to hopefully inspire others to be happy. I think we have a lot to be happy about. If we can just look past all the stuff we think we don't have to be happy about. So there's that. Awesome. We're going to dive deep into that conversation towards the end of our episode. Um, how's it going, guys? What's what's going on with you guys? All right, Lola, you you said you've been foraging acorns all day. What exactly yes. does that involve? So, I, first of all, I just want to preface: I'm trying to find things in my backyard that are edible. Uh, I'm just trying to do a bunch of research and find out the things that we can just get from our own yards to eat. And I figured out... So is this like an experiment in sustainability or do yes. we not, We need to like send you a gift card? No, no I'm fine. Okay, <laughs> um, all right. No, I just am really interested in trying to just try my hand at foraging. I mean, mushrooms and acorns and flowers and things like that. I did it in the summer with dandelions and... Now I'm trying goldenrod and uh, acorns. So I went out all this week and gathered up a bunch of acorns. And if you ever forage for acorns, let me just tell you, you'll get like three pounds worth and then only be able to use about a pound of it because little bugs get into it. And yeah, some of them are like rotten on the inside. So that's really discouraging. However... (laughs) It, How badly do you want to be sustainable? Listen, Lola? I mean, that's protein right there. You're throwing away. I know. I I know. I Those shouldn't be choosy. I shouldn't be choosy. Yes, that's right. But I am because I'm a little bit spoiled. I, I have to, I'm being vulnerable right now. I'm a little bit spoiled. So <laughs> I just thought it would be fun to, to try to learn though. And so I'm, if you know how to make acorn bread and you're listening right now, please message me because <laughs> I'm trying to learn. <laughs> Wow. Kyle, what's up, man? Hey, well, you know, not much. Same old, same old. Just uh, out here every day, just trying to do grown-up stuff, you know, work and try to get ahead of the game a little bit. Outside of that, it's just another day. And we're here just to have some fun. So let's go. All righty. We've been working hard on our end of the microphone on getting ready for a book launch because just a few days from now, Parenting Deconstructed yeah. will be released from Choir Publishing. Really excited about that. Brandy and I got to kind of the end of raising our oldest child and realized the God that we grew up believing in that informed most of our parenting, which was fear-based, wasn't who we believed in anymore. And 
you know, how does parenting style change in light of spiritual deconstruction? I didn't have a lot of answers. And so I reached out to a lot of really brilliant friends who have kids and asked for their stories. And so people like Keith Giles, December Rose, Carl and Laura Forehand, Ben DeLong, Jonathan Puddle, Matt DeStefano, Derek Day, Chris and Elizabeth Aker, Josh Lawson, John Turney, Dr. Mark Karras, and even Phils Drysdale all chimed in on this collaborative book. And what's so much fun about this book for all of us who contributed to it is we're going to donate all of the author royalties to a nonprofit that provides mental health care and counseling for abused kids. That's awesome. Because we know that religion traumatizes people. And there are so many kids who have grown up with ultra strict religious parents who, you know, believe they needed to spank them to prove that they love them and things of that nature who grew up with a mindset of you've got to believe this and, and, you know, the whole rapture trauma that we've talked about in previous episodes. So many kids are growing up in those cults and they're traumatized and they don't know how to unpack that. And so counseling and therapy can be so helpful for somebody in that situation that's been traumatized by religion and abuse. And so we're really excited. Um, so all of you who are listening, please, 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 please go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your favorite independent bookstore, and get Parenting Deconstructed. It's been really cool to see, even in the pre-order phase, it popping up on some bestseller lists. And so we're really excited about that release. But having said that, it's time for something even more exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for Auntie Lola's WTF Bible Story. <laughs> what the fuck? Yay. Okay. First of all, I am just really grateful that I'm not a man. That's all. So this Bible story is David buys a wife with foreskins. So uh, King Saul wasn't exactly a fan of David <laughs> as David was popular with the people while the ruler was basically an ogre of sorts. So as a result, Saul issued a pretty interesting counteroffer when David asked if he could marry his daughter. I can't pronounce her name. I'm not sure if it's Michelle or Michael. I can't tell. But... Saul said, yeah, I'll bless your union as long as you, my aspiring son-in-law, can find me a hundred foreskins and bring them to me. So, you know, we know David. Yeah, he's a go-getter. He's just, he's a little bit, he, he's a little out there. So David promptly went out and killed a bunch of Philistines. And then before leaving battle, post-mortem, you know, circumcised a bunch of them with his sword. and. If we want to make matters even more, what the fuck? Uh, he actually went above the call of duty. He went the extra mile because it's fucking David, you know? And he presented King Saul with 200 foreskins to add to a presumable collection. And um, I just want to end with the question, what the fuck did King Saul do with all the foreskins? <laughs> he was making a very special coat. A very special coat. <laughs> Throwing up noises. <laughs> no. uh, what in the world? Disgusting. I never heard this story until this week, yeah. actually. Well, somebody would have had to explain what a foreskin was. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Ah. Yeah. 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 I just don't... <laughs> you know, that, that's that's like the ultimate red flag that the relationship is a bad idea. Oh, yeah. When the father-in-law, the future father-in-law says that's what he needs in order for to find you acceptable to marry his daughter. You know that David probably wasn't the first to, I guess, <laughs> ask to take his daughter, you know, in a marriage covenant. Like, if he had other daughters, I'm sure there were other suitors that also asked for his blessing. And did he also require foreskin transactions for this kind uh. of thing? Like... Or was he just fucking with David just to see if he would do it? That's my question. 
Yeah, there definitely seems to be like this rivalry with Saul and David. I swear. Uh, later on in the story. But oh, that's just so messed up. Kyle, <laughs> what do you think when you hear stories like that from the Bible? Well, you know what? Uh, nowadays, I bypass the, the characters and I go right to the God behind the characters. Now, I know the Bible very well, studied it most of my life into my adult life, especially was a ministry pastor. And when I talk about knowing the Bible, I'm talking about really digging down deep into it. So these stories and what they represent and all these kind of things. And through all, all the years of my Christian, my, my past Christian experience, I never even had the inkling to point the finger back at the God behind these stories. Now, I know God isn't mentioned in this story particularly. However, let's remember that it was this God who, who selected and anointed David to one day be king. And this God is also known to be all-knowing. So the troubling aspect here comes in and says this, this God selected David to be his king, a man after God's own heart as God himself said, knew that David would one day go out and kill a completely innocent hundred people, take their foreskins, and then please don't misinterpret what I'm about to say, but just to get married, just to fulfill his lustful desire for this woman. He clearly wanted to marry. So that, that paints a very troubling picture of the God who chose this man to be his king. Once again, this, this man who God says is a man after my own heart. What? Why did a hundred men have to die, or more than a hundred men in this particular story, as Lola pointed out, have to die and, and, and why is God not sending Nathan, the prophet, to stop David? <laughs> why isn't God not sending someone to say, David, listen, Saul's a little bit off his rocker. You can't do this. These people shouldn't have to die just so you can get married. So the silence of a God in this matter is troubling to me because this God doesn't stand up for those hundred people and yet we're supposed to believe that this God is a loving God. And it just doesn't seem that way to me. I'll say. Also, I have to wonder too, I mean, obviously women are worth so much. Like we know this, that every woman is a goddess of sorts. However, was it worth it? <laughs> and um, I don't know. They had just a lot of wives back in the day. So it's like, you would do this for the one wife. Are you going to do this for all of them? I'm just, I'm concerned, David. <laughs> I'm concerned. That maybe he's just a serial killer who's looking for an excuse to kill people and cut off their parts. Listen, he used a sword to do it also, which is kind of, tr what is it with foreskins in the Bible? Like there's just something about circumcision that just keeps coming back up. Yeah. In scripture, and I'm like, it is not that deep. It's <laughs> it's not that deep, God. Yeah, listen, it goes back to to the to the source, right? How, how did they know to do that? Where was that instruction from? You know, who, what, what power called for it back in Abraham's day? So th this is going on for generations and generations. So somewhere in in Saul's psyche. Somewhere in David's psyche, much like modern day Christianity, when you're doing things that you think your God approves of, i.e., example for for example, hating gay people, when you think that you're doing something your God does, you see nothing wrong with it. Yeah, it becomes normal. And God clearly in in that mindset in the Old Testament scriptures is calling other people enemies and commanding their be slaughtered. Yeah. So they thought nothing. Uh, nothing. Well, my enemy is obviously God's enemy because we're God's people. Yeah. And so everyone else can die because they're just like animals anyway. 
and those, those uh, barbarian Philistines, uh, what, what difference does it make if we take out 100 or 200 of them and circumcise them so they're more like us? Yep. And you asked if it was worth it, Lola. I'm guessing not because later in the story, uh, that wife that David went that extra mile for is uh, making fun of him and embarrassed by him when he's worshiping Turns on before him. the presence of God and he starts stripping off his clothes. And she tells him what a fool he is. Like a strip team? Or like no, a- it's like <laughs> dancing, in the, dancing through the field with reckless abandon and taking okay. his clothes off. Yeah. Hey, we all been there, bud. We've all been there. <laughs> dancing before the Lord with all of his might. <laughs> hey, but no foreskin allowed. None of that. Uh, well, you know, I've rethought a lot of things since I first read that story. Oh my goodness, 25 years ago. Yeah. Okay, what have you rethought? <laughs> oh, I've rethought almost all of that. Okay. But I'm uh, saying that to pitch to um, our interview this week is with a gentleman named Daniel Henderson, who has written an awesome book called, called Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. It's his own memoir of how he rethought so much about what the Bible's taught and the faith that went along with it. So we're going to go to that interview now. Let me first tell you a little bit about Daniel. Uh, He had a 40-year career in education. He has the grounding of being a lifelong Midwesterner and has traveled extensively. His teaching career in the field of history and religion has given many of his students inspiration and motivation to pursue their own careers in those fields. Dan has traveled to Europe and Central America and all over the United States. He has a passion for history and historic sites. He's currently uh, published his memoir called Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical, and it is available now. And I'm going to share that interview with you now. It is a privilege to welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Daniel Henderson. Daniel, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Glad to be here. I'm really excited about your book, and I love the title because it it reminds me so much of, uh, I guess the, the book itself reminds me so much of my own story. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to find that it resonates with them as well. Uh, the book is entitled Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical, Overcoming Fear and Certainty to Find Faith Through Doubt and Questioning. Daniel, before we get into the book, I, I would love to just hear your story. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Yeah, I was. I uh, I, I mentioned in the book, uh, kind of in the introductory part, I I uh, became a Christian as a young kid, actually. I went to a Billy Graham crusade in 1964 in Omaha, no less. And, you know, at that point, I, you know, you gave your life to Christ. And we went to a, a fairly conservative church, uh, Church of Christ. And I grew up in the evangelical environment. Yeah. And uh, even went to Bible college, went to seminary, and then ultimately ended up teaching in Christian schools for about 20 years. So I was I was pretty deeply enmeshed in the evangelical uh, culture. So it had to be a big shift for you. I mean, it sounds like so much of your life was dedicated to that evangelical headspace. It had to be a huge shift for you when you started dealing with questions and doubts and uncertainty, as the subtitle of your book uh, denotes. So when did that start for you? When did you start saying, this may not be as clear as I thought it was? Well, in in hindsight, hindsight's good, you know. Those questions were kind of always there, but probably the the questions really started becoming uh, more more prominent around the 1980s. You know, I was an evangelical back before evangelicals were Republicans, and now (laughs) that's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long while, and and in fact, I was part of what was called the Jesus People Movement, and the Jesus People Movement really just didn't care that much about politics. Although if they did, they were, you know, they were anti-war, they were pro-civil rights, they were doing a lot of things that, you know, young people of that age or that era were involved in. 
social justice issues. So, so the reality began to hit me in around 1980. I was working in a Christian school and, and my colleagues began to say things like, you know, if you don't vote for Ronald Reagan, you're, you're, you, you, you may not be a Christian. <laughs> and and it, it, it sort of was a stark realization to me that, uh, you know, something has happened here. Something really wrong is, is, is taking place within this, what I used to call the Jesus People Movement. It's, it's, uh, it, it took a hard right turn. I describe it as, you know, the even, the evangelical bus bypassed the, the Democratic National Headquarters went right to the Republican National Convention. And that's where it's <laughs> been. That's where it's been ever since. So that raised a lot of questions for me, Jason. And, uh, and, and then there were some events later. I don't know if you want to hear about those, but that kind of brought it to a head. <clears throat> In fact, I'll, I'll just tell you that part. It was in the 90s. I, I experienced a divorce at that point, had two kids, still working in a Christian environment. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're in a Christian environment, you're a leader and you go through a divorce, bad things usually happen. Uh, it's not the kind of culture that <laughs> becomes very encouraging or supportive. And uh, I had people come into my office and say, you know, maybe you ought to resign. You know, your God doesn't want you to be a leader anymore. And, you know, just all of these kind of goofy, crazy things that people think they hear from God. And uh, that that was a crisis moment. That was probably the moment where the past questions came to roost with the current, you know, divorce crisis, which itself was kind of a shift. And uh, from that point on, that's where the book really began to take shape is is probably back in the 90s and into the 2000s. Wow. So what would you say is the biggest shift in your understanding of God from where you started to where you are today? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> so I think, I think the biggest shift, and there's two things I'll mention. One is moving away from the idea of a uh, when Jim Palmer describes this, the sky god that's up there, you know, dispensing gifts and punishments to, to people like little children, uh, that, that type of god, which is really in many ways uh, part of the description of God you find in many parts of the Bible, uh, kind of moving away from God as a theistic separate being to seeing God as more of part of just my whole consciousness and humanity, ground of being. And when that shift took takes place, and, and that came over a long period of time, by the way, of, of just kind of trying to trying to understand uh, God in a different way through the experiences I was having. The evangelical conception of God just didn't just wasn't working. And so I came into this new reality through some study and reading that I had done. And it, it was very peaceful. It was a very peaceful tr transition to, to begin to think about God as, as something that is just part of my being, part of, part of reality and, and not necessarily something separate. So it was all about connection for me. And that kind of leads me to a second <clears throat> shift, I guess, Jason is, I began to define faith very differently also. And, and, and part of that was because I was seeing God differently. And so the biggest shift there was be, to begin to deconstruct faith as belief, meaning, you know, if you ask most Christians, well, you know, what, what, what is your faith? Well, they'll recite their statement of faith, you know, their, their beliefs. And I began to realize that Faith has nothing, not very much to do with belief, but it has everything to do with being, with being human, with being, uh, connecting with that God within my own humanity. So I began to give up the idea that faith is about beliefs or doctrines or creeds or theologies. And those pretty much just get in the way. <laughs> and, and I began to, to realize that faith is much more about connection connection to God within myself, to other people, to the society around me, how that impacts that. Uh, and all of that begins to come out in the book, I think. After being in the Christian education world for as long as you were, 
Was it hard for you to begin to think differently about the Bible? I know you've got a chapter on that in your book I'd love to talk about. Uh, Yeah, you know, the Bible plays such a prominent role within the evangelical church. And and of course, I grew up with that, even even in the Jesus people movement. You know, the Bible was just critical. And uh, and of course, in Christian education, that's pretty much the the basis or the, the, you know, the curriculum is pretty much how do we use the Bible to interpret the world around us, including science and history and literature and all of those things? And uh, the problem was, in many ways, it was a it was kind of like making a you know square peg fit in a round hole. It just didn't fit all the time. You had to make it fit. So you came up with all kinds of what I call pretzel-like distortions to <laughs> to make the Bible relevant in every case, in every situation, whether it was evolution or whether it was, you know, uh, creation science, whatever it is, uh, you know, the Bible had to take preeminence. And of course, that's because the belief is it was the, the inspired spoken word of God. Well, over time, again, as I began to make the shifts in my belief around God and what what the nature of God is and what the nature of faith is. I began to, and, and of course, as a historian, that's my background is history. I began to realize, well, the, you know, the Bible is, it, it is a good piece of history, but it's not really a history book. Uh, and it's not infallible. There are contradictions within it. There are errors within it. If, if you're going to be an honest historian anyway. And so as I began to look at that and say, well, okay, what, what new, place can the Bible play in my life now that I've kind of walked away from that evangelical mindset? And of course, there's still plenty there within the Bible to uh, to find inspiration, not necessarily as the inspired Word of God, but just inspiration for humanity. There, there's a lot of good that, that I think we can find there. Uh, so it's about understanding human nature. It's about understanding the nature of reality, the nature of God, but kind of putting the Bible in its proper place as a human book that has problems, it has errors, and it certainly has its share of of um, distortions uh, within it. I, I bring some of that out in another chapter about lessons I learned from VBS, Vacation Bible School. And uh, that chapter, I kind of highlight some of the uh, really bad ideas that the Bible teaches, um, uh, you know, the story of Lot and his daughters, for instance, would be an example. And uh, he wanted to give his daughters up to be raped by the townsmen. And it's like, as a kid, I, we heard that story and I thought, well, wait a minute, who, did anyone ask those girls that they wanted to do this? <laughs> you know, it was, right. it yeah. was uh, you know, apparently that's what God wanted. So, you know, very quickly I learned that maybe God's misogynist, you know, maybe God doesn't, mm. maybe boys are more important than girls or, you know, and certainly the story presumably said we're, we're not supposed to be gay or homosexual. So, you know, a lot of distorted messages in the Bible that, Quite frankly, when you use it in places like Sunday schools and Christian school, it gives people, young people particularly, a pretty distorted view of God and reality. So I think we have to undo a lot of that and try to, to work toward a more, maybe more enlightened view. How have your views about Jesus evolved over time? That's a good question. I, you know, and, and people ask me that uh, on occasion. Well. You, you've rejected evangelicalism, but do you, do you still believe in Jesus? And it's like, well, yeah, of course. I, <laughs> there's nothing about Jesus that, that I find very objectionable. In fact, I, I love the teachings of Christ in the New Testament, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. And I have a whole chapter in the book on showing that Jesus really was more of a humanist than he was maybe even a Jew. I mean, he challenged the religious uh, assumptions of, of Judaism and of his day. But when you really dive, take a deep dive into his teachings, they are very, very humanistic. They're about what kind of people are we now? What kind of people do we want to become? How are we connected to one another? How should we deal with power and the powerless and the marginalized? So, 
very, very little teaching from Jesus is about, you know, how do you get to heaven or the four spiritual laws or, you know, all of those, those things that evangelical Christianity has adorned around Jesus. And of course, probably the big one is the divinity of Christ. Uh, and that would, that would cause a great deal of anxiety once I, I tell people, yeah, I'm not so sure about that divinity of Christ. I think Jesus was a very, very enlightened human being who experienced himself, his own divine nature. And, and, and I think that that goes to what he said about the kingdom of God is within you. It's not out there somewhere. It's already in you. And it wasn't just in him. I think he was trying to tell us that, hey, it's in you too. And you can connect to that. And when you do, what a, what a transformation can take place. And I don't mean necessarily being born again. I just mean in terms of seeing yourself in your reality as a true human being. So much of evangelical Christianity wants us to try to, uh, diminish our humanity, you know, um, and, and tells us how bad we are. And we're sinners, rotten sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I'm just, I what just don't think. What our friend Keith Giles would call a worm theology. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. And I, I don't think that's what Jesus was teaching at all. I don't think that's even close. I think that's a, uh, you know, a distortion that came over time and historically. But um, anyway, I, I, I think you don't necessarily have to, reject Jesus to reject evangelicalism. That's the bottom line. Mm. What do you think Jesus, I know I'm asking you to presume, okay? What do you think the Jesus of history, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who preached the Sermon on the Mound would have to say to today's evangelicals like the MAGA camp? Well, I think, (laughs) what would Jesus say? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I, I, I can't speak for Jesus, but, you know, I, I think he would probably view, since so many of the MAGA crowd are, are in that crowd of both evangelical and Christian nationalists, and I deal with Christian nationalism quite a bit in the book, and, and, and it's probably important to draw some distinctions between Christian nationalists who are in the MAGA crowd and other evangelicals who don't necessarily ascribe to that ideology. And, and, and Christian nationalism really is an ideology. But it uses religious, what I call sugarcoating, to, to try to give gravitas or weight to their arguments. You know, because if God says something, then, you know, we, there is no argument to it. But I think Jesus would probably view the Christian nationalists, particularly, who are using religion to, 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 as a, as a way to gain power. I think he would see them very much like Pharisees in, in the New Testament and other groups who were religious leaders who were aspiring to just simply exercise pure raw power over other people. And those were the people he had the most condemnation for. He didn't spare too many words with, the Pharisees about what he thought of them, and and Fruit of vipers. Yeah, there comes was some, to mind. <laughs> I, I can't think of anyone else. Whitewashed tombs. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't think of anyone else he talked about that way. Uh, certainly not other human beings, particularly the marginalized and and uh, even the tax collectors, guys like Zacchaeus. I mean, he didn't talk about them that way. So uh, I, I, I kind of see them in that in that vein and, and and in that sense they aren't really spiritual at all i mean and this is where the distinction comes between what's religious and what's spiritual they were religious <laughs> christian nationalists are religious but they're not spiritual and and i think that's probably a, a distinction jesus would was making it uh, calling them out that way I'm interested to explore a little further the shift that you've made from evangelicalism to more of a humanist perspective. Can you tell me what that shift looks like in your life on a practical basis? I mean, how what difference has it made when you talk about being more of a humanist? Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of things that, 
there that personally it, it changes in terms of how I see things and how I see the world. Uh, and probably one of the biggest shifts, and, and this will actually go into a couple of other chapters in the book in a moment, but the, the big shift was beginning to move away from seeing myself as an evangelical who had the truth, and therefore I could judge other people and tell them how they ought to be living their lives. You know, the, I call it the, <laughs> the uh, uh, behavior police. I gave up my badge as the behavior police. I'm no longer going around writing behavior citations to people because of how they live. You know, it's just that that was probably the biggest shift is because, uh, again, seeing faith as something internal and seeing God as something that I'm connected to, um, it also connects me to all human beings. And so (laughs) judging people, it's just not part of that mindset anymore. Uh, so giving that up is important, but, but then it began to, to, to have ramifications socially. And so there's a whole section in the book on actually a couple sections on my changing perspectives on things like social justice and equal rights for, for blacks moving from being simply a non-racist, which is what I would have considered myself as an evangelical. And I think most a lot of evangelicals consider themselves non-racists, meaning personally, I'm not guilty of being a bigot, right? But moving toward a more anti-racist uh, view, which which predicates the fact that we're all connected. So my freedom is connected to every other person's freedom. And if someone isn't free, then I'm not free. If someone is oppressed, then I'm oppressed. And that that perspective is very, very different than just saying, oh, I'm not guilty of being a bigot, you know, because I love Jesus and Jesus loves everybody, you know. It's about taking action. And so when, when you begin to understand your connection to other people, uh, other who are different than you, races, even religion, and religion is another one. Uh, you know, Muslims in our community or the Baha'i faith or anyone, the atheists, uh, you begin to realize that if they're oppressed, then I'm oppressed. And we have to work to correct that. They are systemic issues. They're not just personal sins. So that's a, that's a big change is because evangelicals tend to view racism as a personal sin. And the only thing that's going to correct it, in fact, I quote Billy Graham in the book, he talked about, yeah, you know, we're going to have racial bias until Jesus comes back again. So not much you can do about it except repent, you know, if you're a bigot yourself and then try to win as many people to Christ. Well, I'm sorry, that's probably not, that's probably not a solution for people who are experiencing experiencing systemic racism right now. And when you begin to see yourself as connected to them, you you develop empathy. And empathy becomes a motivation to take action. It isn't guilt. You see, a a lot of evangelicals think you're trying to make them feel guilty if you ask them to work toward ending systemic racism. And their answer is, well, you know, all lives matter. That's that's the response. I get that from evangelicals all the time. Uh and and, and it just simply shows that they're they they tend to see racism as a personal sin, not as a systemic issue. The other area that that really has changed in the social sphere is my view of of the of gays and and that whole uh arena. Uh, and I was, you know, pretty typical in the Christian school. You you could not teach <laughs> tolerance very well uh, for people who are homosexual um, in Christian school. You'd probably be kicked out pretty fast. And uh, so as I began to process that issue and began to see, well, you know what? Love is love. Jesus didn't draw too many distinctions between who he loved and cared for. And uh, my daughter actually helped me with this. She she, uh, she, she was involved in, in, uh, pride parades and, and standing up for, uh, uh, 
the gay community and and kind of through I, in fact I include a, a piece in the book that she wrote which was actually a Facebook status <laughs> and she talked about how love wins love wins every time and uh, so that began to change my perspective about gay marriage and 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 those kinds of relationships and and to become an advocate not and not sit on the sidelines so I think to answer your question, there's so many things, you know, when, when you begin to make shifts in your thinking um, out of the evangelical, I would call it a uh, straitjacket. You begin to open your, your yourself to a whole new way of seeing yourself in the social and cultural setting. And you realize, I, I have to take some responsibility and do something. <laughs> so, you know, here where I live, we we've developed we've set yeah you know developed a uh, social justice committee in our community. We we celebrate Juneteenth. It's not a very diverse town, but we celebrate Juneteenth, and we try to create an atmosphere that is inclusive to all people. We celebrate pride. We we celebrate uh, the gay community, and so there's there's just a whole different way of thinking, way of being, I think, once you leave the evangelical straitjacket behind. I love it. That's so beautiful. Uh, another issue that you explore in some depth in your book is you, you basically, I thought, redefined what it means to be pro-life. Can we talk about that for a minute? You actually talk about being pro-life and pro-choice at the same time. Can you do both? Yeah, I've, I, and I've struggled with that for a long time. I, even in the Christian school, when, when I was, of course, required to teach that anti-abortion is the only position or pro-life is the only position that you can take, you know, we even did things like we, we would take kids to the state house to lobby, you know, for parental, parental choice type, type laws or anything anti-abortion. Or we stand on a picket line with signs, you know, anti-abortion signs. So, that was really the only choice. But even in my mind, I still had concerns about what, what does that really mean uh, to be opposed to a woman's right to choose? And, and there was something within it. And maybe it goes back to my 1960s, <laughs> you know, um, uh, just focus on the individual, individual freedoms, which, which is kind of where my my roots lie, that that really bothered me about telling a person what they can and cannot do with their body. Now, personally, as I mentioned in the book, I, I, I'm pro-life. I would love to see every, every uh, conceived embryo, if we can start there, uh, have a chance at life, if possible. Um, but But the reality is, those are decisions that don't belong to me. They don't belong to you. <laughs> they, they only belong really to one person, and that's the that's the woman who's who's bearing that that uh, that embryo. And so, pro life, I I, I kind of began to look at it as sort of a red herring uh, issue that even Joe. And actually, by the 1980s, it, it was clearly. I could see it myself. It was clearly a political wedge issue that as evangelical Christianity began to converge with right-wing politics, it really was a wedge issue that was designed to do one thing, and that's kind of get people upset and get them out to vote. Now, ultimately, it took a long time, but they did succeed just this year, as, as you know, in ending Roe versus Wade and, and basically throwing that whole issue back to the state. So, I mean, there, there was a long-term uh, plan, I guess you can call it, but it worked very, very well for the, uh, you know, for the Republicans to be able to use that each issue to enrage people to get them out to vote for their candidates. And I saw it every time. We're, I'm in Iowa. It's, you know, we have the Iowa caucuses here and, and, and there were times, or a couple times I went to the Republican caucus and and I can tell you that evangelicals absolutely, well, if they didn't control that process, they, they very much influenced it. Um, but no one in that 
culture was ever talking about what do we do about uh, if we start making women, you know, give birth to every child, what, what happens to the well-being of that child once they're born? Uh, what about their education? What about poverty? Because so many women that, that do have abortions, some of the reasons they have an abortion is because, because of their pov- the poverty they're in. And they just simply don't have the means. They may already have one or two children. They don't have the means to raise another one. Uh, then what about job prospects? I mean, poverty is such a cycle. If you start out, you know, at a, at a starting line that's 100 yards back from everyone else, you're going to spend your whole life trying to catch up. And, and most of the time you don't. So, you know, what do we do as a society? If we're going to start making women give birth, to these children? What are we going to do for the children? Where, how are we going to level that starting line so that they can start at the same level as everyone else? And I never heard any talk like that from my evangelical colleagues. And if you brought it up, <laughs> they, they would say, oh, that's just liberal welfare as socialism. We, we're, we're not for that. So it ended up being, hey, you're pro-birth, but you really aren't pro-life because pro-life would be interested in the quality that a, that a child has once they are born and that extends really through their whole life. And, and, uh, and, and, and being involved in education, I understand very, very well the impact of good education on the future and prospects for any, any young person. Uh, and so many kids that, that don't have good educational programs like in the inner city or or other places so a lot of them are in rural areas where there's just not a lot of money um they their prospects are not very good um and so there's a lot of work we need to do to become truly pro-life i think we have to really think about the broader issues and not talk so much about abortion as the only aspect of being pro-life right other issues being you know hunger uh, war, the death penalty, things like that? Absolutely. And in fact, I, I think I list eight things in the chapter <laughs> that if you're really pro-life, you would probably be against things like death penalty. That makes no sense at all. Uh, you would be uh, against the war machine that the United States has established. You know, if you look at the wars we've engaged in in the past, you know, since World War II, pretty much, there really isn't too much that would be considered pro-life about any of those adventures. Very destructive, very, uh, very death-oriented. So, I mean, you, you can go down and make a whole list. There's probably more than eight. In fact, I just put eight of them in there uh, that kind of define for me my thought about what it really means to be pro-life. Yeah, there's, there's a whole list. And then you just blew my mind with a chapter on thanking Donald Trump. Um, I, I was like you. I, I would consider myself anti-abortion for most of my adult life since I kind of understood the issue. Growing up in evangelicalism, marched in the pro-life parades, pastored churches for 20-something years, very, very anti-abortion. But when Roe versus Wade was overturned, Something happened inside of me that became concerned all of the sudden. Well, are we really going to put doctors or mothers in jail for having abortion? Are we really going to say to a woman who's been raped or, um, you know, who's a victim of incest that she has to carry the baby of her uh, rapist? Are we really, I mean, practically, how does that work? And, and and I saw exactly what you mentioned about this, you know, 40-year plan, starting back with Reagan to get evangelicals on board, to get their votes by using this wedge issue. And Trump mastered that. And I mean, really, I, so many people told me the only reason they voted for Donald Trump was the Supreme Court and abortion and they got their payoff this year, but it, as with so many other issues, it's so much more complicated 
than I thought it was when I was evangelical, steeped in that straitjacket that you mentioned. Um, but your chapter on thanking Donald Trump uh, was really, really insightful. Can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that and that chapter, you know, I actually wrote that before Roe was overturned. And if I had written it maybe after that, I might have included that as, as part of Again, in, in sort of a counterintuitive way, saying, "Well, thank you, Donald Trump." And the reason I say that is, those kinds of things are what uh, have energized people in ways that we would have never have thought before. You know, I think for for so long, we at least with Roe, we've we've kind of been uh, complacent. Yeah, Roe's here. No one's ever going to. Turn it, overturn that. I mean, why would they do that? You know, and, and you, you really don't take that threat as real. Uh, but I, but I am telling you, the backlash to this is going to change politics for years to come. Um, and and so in a in a very uh, tongue in cheek sort of way, I can say thank you, Donald Trump. You have just probably spelled the end of the pro-life movement as you know it, because I think the backlash is going to be way bigger than anything people uh, have have even anticipated. But the chapter itself, I, I deal with four other areas, even though they kind of relate to, to Roe in some ways. But, you know, uh, it starts out with just simply being shocked back in 2016 that Donald Trump was even elected. That was That in itself was probably as unthinkable as Roe being overturned. Right. I mean, but but in hindsight, as I as I looked at the past four years or that four years of his presidency, I've seen so much activism taking place that would have never taken place had, for instance, I think uh, Hillary Clinton be, been elected. Uh, it, and I I voted for Hillary. I wanted her to win. <laughs> and I was sad that she didn't. But I'm not sure her presidency would have sparked, for instance, uh, the massive Me Too movement that we see now. I mean, the, the first movement that I talk about is the Me Too movement, Women March, the Women's March, uh, that took place right after uh, uh, Trump was elected and, and came to office. Women have been mo- motivated in, in, in uh, politically and socially now in ways that I've never seen before. And I'm talking about a long time in terms of going back a long way. Uh, uh, decades. Another one is, uh, young people and, uh, gun, gun safety movement. I think that, that movement's going to continue. I don't, I mean, I know that we're fighting an uphill battle when it, particularly when it comes to the judicial branch now, who seem to want to rubber stamp everything that the right wing wants to, to give them. But I think in the long run, you have to kind of look at the long run for this. You know, people that wanted to overturn Roe, they've been working on it for 40 years, 40, 50 years. Um, and I think we, we have to develop a long range strategy. Some of this may not even happen till after I'm gone, you know, but if we develop, if we, if we develop a commitment to it and develop this, the, uh, infrastructure to fight against it, I, I we, we will prevail, and the reason I know that is that the demographics are in our favor. And when I say demographics, I mean uh, most of the MAGA movement and, and and that crowd are are pretty much my age. You know, I'm I'm in my sixties, and uh, we're, we're not going to be around that much longer. And I think younger generations, and, and in fact, when you look at the nuns, those that have left evangelical Christianity, it's it's actually represented way more in the millennial generation and generation Z than it is in my generation. Um, so I, I think uh, uh, we're, we're headed toward a much better place. And the reason I thank Donald Trump is because I, I think with him, he sh- I mentioned that he held up a mirror to us um, as a society. And, and, and what we saw in the mirror was shocking. It was absolutely horrible. He showed us how bigoted we are. He showed us, and I'm talking about the, the, the dark underbelly of American society. He showed us just how uh, hypocritical we are when it comes to religion. He showed us how sexist we are, and on and on. I could, I could keep going. But he basically held up the mirror and he said, look, America, look at yourself in the mirror. You look just like me. 
And people were so shocked by that. I think that has set off social movements that, that are going to have huge ramifications in the future. So um, that's what I mean by that chapter, Jason. It's, you know, obviously I'm not thanking Donald Trump for anything that he's done for the country because he hasn't done anything for the country except damage. But in terms of sparking resistance and change, I think we could probably thank him for uh, maybe giving us a wake-up call (laughs) about what we need to do. I certainly hope so. Once again, my guest today is Daniel Henderson. The name of the book is Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical, Overcoming Fear and Certainty to Find Faith Through Doubt and Questioning. Uh, As this episode is released, the book is available right now. You can find it on Amazon. We will have a link to the book in the show notes for this episode, as uh, as well as lots of links to Dan's social media. Uh, You can sign up and get a newsletter from him that I I actually receive and really enjoy it. And Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this discussion and I hope to talk to you again. Well, thank you, Jason, for inviting me and uh, so happy to be here. Thank you. And we're back. And so I thought because it's getting towards Thanksgiving, it would be a great opportunity to talk about gratitude and how does gratitude change in light of deconstruction. You know, this was the time of year where we all talk about how grateful we are to God for our many blessings. And when I first learned about that, we were thankful that the Native Americans shared their feast with the pilgrims, totally leaving out of that story that the pilgrims later murdered them. And so I've deconstructed Thanksgiving too. But as we think about gratitude this time of year, what kind of things are you grateful for? What makes you grateful? Kyle? You know, you're you're so right about that, Jason. We once had a singular mindset that whenever the word gratitude or grateful came up, we had to put that God part in there first and think about all these things we're grateful for God for. And it really took us out of the equation. I mean, it, it made it made us really insignificant when we talked about gratefulness and things of that nature. And now that I'm that I, I look back on it all and I'm free from all of that, and I spent the last year and a half now really diving deep into myself. And I can say this, and it's growing. It's it's, it's growing within me more and more and more. I am really grateful for myself. I'm grateful for the journey. I'm grateful for the experience. I'm grateful for my ability to, you know, to grow and, 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 and to step out of those realms of fear and to, to really embrace the, the belief system that I'm love and everyone is love and everyone is worthy of love. And this is, this is something that Again, fear and indoctrination and all those things that I was so wrapped up in before really kept me blinded to. So I'm really proud of myself that I stepped out of it. And of course, I'm grateful for the things that, you know, that, that matter to me, my friends and my family and, and the opportunities that, that I see now in front of me that are growing. So I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful to have this, this outlook on life and this this uh, perspective on on things. And I'm grateful that hopefully, well, I'm grateful that I believe that, you know, we're, we're making a difference. And I'm grateful to have that opportunity to do so. Wow. Beautiful. Lola, how about it? What are you grateful for? What makes you grateful? I'm grateful for acorns. No, I'm just <laughs> the ones without the worms. Yeah, the, the wormless ones. I mean... <laughs> Well, I would kind of along what Kyle is saying too, like grateful for yourself, which seems weird to say, but I guess, you know, grateful for like my own ability, uh, just my own abilities, my own skills, um, the knowledge that I've come into just in the last couple of years. Um, I'm just grateful for that. And I think more than that, you know, a lot of people that en- enter deconstruction really ruffle the feathers of everyone in their community and family. And sometimes you don't get to come back from that. 
sometimes you can come back and like have good relationships with your family and former friends and former community, but not all of us got that luxury. And so I'm really grateful for the community that has been fostered in this whole, this whole growing season for me. Um, I'm grateful for the people that stepped up to, to be a family, like newborn family to me. So that that's really what I think I'm most grateful for in this season. Um, wow, I sound like a really white pastor's wife right now. And this season, I'm so grateful for Chick-fil-A and... Pumpkin spice lattes. And pumpkin spice Okay, I won't hate on you guys that like that stuff, but it's just very common for the hot... My, my, my wife is so hot. Look at her. You know, that pastor, the youth pastor that's kind of creepy with the V-neck. And he's like, look at my wife. She's so hot. We waited till marriage. Sorry. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm grateful for new, newfound community, newfound family, honestly. Yeah. You know, last year uh, or the end of the previous year, 2020, when I got that first case of COVID and I thought it was the end, texted my kids goodbye, kissed my wife goodbye for heading to the hospital, um, did not think I would come back. And every day since then has been a gift. I hate everything you just said. I mean, I love it, but I ha- like I'm starting to tear up because it, it was so freaky that you were so close to... Yeah. It, well, and... <sighs> You know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that that's over. I, I hate that it happened, but Hell yes. uh, at, at the same time, my life has changed dramatically in the last two years. I mean, I wake up every day realizing what a gift my life is. I look at my wife differently than I did before that. I look at my kids differently than I did before that. I look at the Gulf of Mexico when I'm sitting on the beach differently than I did before that. And so I'm grateful for the crap that I went through, for all the fear, for all that that I had to go through to get to where I am. I don't understand all that. I I certainly don't think anybody caused it. I don't think, you know, God's responsible or anything like that. But I am so grateful to be here now with these people that I love in this place that I love, doing work that I love. And um, I'm grateful for, like you were saying, Lola, this, this community that has sprung up around all of us. You know, I keep hearing from pastors that you don't get community in deconstruction because you can't find community on the internet. That is a lie. It's just not true. Uh, Kat Love, one of my good friends, met through the internet. <laughs> our um, our one Patreon, love our, you, Kat Love. Our one patron, our, yes, yeah. met through the internet, and and you've hung out with Christopher and Elizabeth Aker. Oh yes, I stayed at their house for vacation this year. It was amazing. Yeah, and Kyle, I know you've gone places and met people that. You met on the internet oh, yeah. in, in kind of the deconstruction community. Oh, yeah. And you guys have lifelong friendships. Oh, yeah. And I mean, obviously, so do I. I mean, Carl and Laura Forehand came and visited us after we'd just been, you know, podcasting buddies for a year or two. They came <laughs> here and, and hung out with us for several days. I mean, so there is real community to be found. And I'm so grateful for this thing called deconstruction. And I know it's kind of become like a passe, oh, I hate that term deconstruct. No, I'm grateful for it. I'm, I'm grateful for the things that it led me to let go of. I'm grateful that I'm not pastoring that church anymore, preaching those hateful things anymore, judging those people anymore. I'm grateful for all the new that's come that has more than replaced anything that I lost. Do you feel that way? Yeah. For sure. I do. I'm, I'm glad I, I'm not a conservative Christian. Take off the market. Okay. Okay. Here he, here, here he comes. Okay. Thank you. I'm very grateful that I don't own a MAGA hat anymore. <clears throat> there is a God. 
there's a God. There is a God just because of that. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I think so. Kyle, um, what, what would you say to all the folks who are saying that you can't find real community outside of, you know, the Christian church? I would say you can't find real community, real friendship, real loyalty in the Christian community. It's, it, it's so much of that is based on common belief. Each one of us, three of us on this podcast tonight, Jason, Lola, and myself, I guarantee you we can all say that some of the people that was closest to us, some people in our families, some people in our friends grouping, some people we had, you know, Jason and I will, can relate to this. We did ministry together with other pastors. They preached at our church. We preached at their church. As soon as our, our, our beliefs started to change, those people fell off. And no matter how, how long and how deep the relationship had been, no matter how much we fellowship with them, with them in the past, those relationships just dropped off. And I've met people in the, quote, deconstruction community where we started deconstructing five, six, seven, eight years ago. And, and I may have, may have deconstructed maybe more than they have in some ways. And guess what? They're still my friends. You know, the, the, they still fellowship with me and they haven't blocked me and they still talk to me. So I, I would say that the real community is outside of that Christian circle because that Christian circle to me is so much predicated on like belief. And that's it. If, if your beliefs change in that community, you've got nothing. And so to me, that's just not real. Because instead of being based in the value of every human being. It's based on agreement. Yep. And when the moment you don't agree with even the slightest tenet that someone has decided is important, you're out. You're out. And y'all, that is not real community. Nope. It's just not. Lola, what say you on that? I think, I mean, wherever you want to find community, you'll find it. Wherever you're seeking you're going to find a community. So, I mean, it can look good, it can look bad. But I guess the only, <laughs> not the only true thing that I'm taking from Scripture at this point in my life, but but one true thing is, you know, seek and you will find, you know. Yeah, that Jesus, he had some stuff to say. That yeah, good old Jesus, that man. Mm. Well, this has been fun, guys. I love these conversations. I'm so grateful. That's one thing that I'm grateful for is for this podcast and these conversations. Me and too. Both of y'all taking this journey with us uh, this season. I'm so grateful. Um, you guys have just totally changed the conversation here. So thank you both for being a part of it. Thank you for letting you. us. Yes. This has been the best. It's the greatest. And friends, we will talk to you again two weeks from today. We'll be back with another episode. We hope you all have a very, very happy Thanksgiving. We love you. Bye-bye. <laughs> love you. <laughs>